Welcome to another quarantine-based episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Well, it's December, finally. This year is almost over, though we still have a ways to go, and we don't yet have a return to some kind of normalty on the horizon, but we can still plug away and continue to focus on good and interesting work that is being done to try and move us forward in our pursuit of knowledge and progression. And there'll be some bumps along the way, but I think we'll be okay as far as this program goes. <laughs> I can't say anything for the wider world. Okay, so tonight we are going to start with a story about the first ever footage of ram's horn squid, Spirula spirula, in its natural habitat. While the internal shells of these weird little squids are often found by beachcombers in the tropics, they are not previously, they have not previously been found um, in the wild. Now, the cephalopods are a mere seven centimeters in length, which is less than three inches, with eight arms, two tentacles, characteristically large eyes, because they do uh, dwell in the deep sea, and are just in general the usual weird and wonderful profile of a squid or other cephalopod. The internal shell is equipped with chambers of gas that the squid is believed to be able to manipulate in order to adjust its buoyancy and is found inside of the mantle. The first specimen was filmed by an ROV from the Schmidt Ocean Institute, where the researchers were not actually sure what they were seeing at first when it floated into view. The video was a live feed from the Great Barrier Reef, or GRB, at around 27, 2,750 feet below the surface during the last dive of the Edge GRB expedition. The finding was announced on Twitter, of course. Exciting news! This appears to be the first observation of Spirula, a.k.a. Ram's Horn Squid, alive plus in its natural environment, very rarely seen or captured. They have many extinct relatives, but are only living member of the genus Spirula, family Spirulidae, and order Spirulida. So that is very exciting. And so the ram's horn squid is actually one of the most unusual cephalopods uh, because it features an internal spiral resembling the shell of a nautilus. And so nautiluses actually have their shells on the outside. And so only the spirula and our friends, the cuttlefish, um, are among the only the only animals in the mollusk family that actually have those internal shells. So everything else, if it has a shell, has an external shell. So the nautilus has its shell on the outside, um, and all sorts of other mollusks have shells. Um, and of course, there are some that don't have any shell whatsoever. So that's a lot of the, um, a lot of 
kinds of squid and uh octopuses don't have any kind of shell. The only really hard part in an octopus is the beak, the chitinous beak. Okay, so these squids are sometimes caught by researchers and they can live in captivity, but this is the first time one has been observed fully in the wild. And not only is this a novel finding as a video just in general, but the position of the animal in the video is also making scientists question what they know about this creature. So it turns out that the animal is seen with its head and tentacles floating toward the top of the water with its fins pointing down. Are we completely sure about the orientation of the chute? If this is the case, this is a kind of revolution, asked Nigel Nige Pascal, who studies Sparula at the University of Burgundy in France, and called the video very exciting. Morgane uh, Odute, a PhD physicist, a PhD student of Pascal's, excuse me, and one of the few researchers in the field, wrote, a lot of people are freaking out because the head is up. Um, and the reason they're freaking out is because the shell with its buoyancy is at the other end of the squid. And so that is pretty interesting. Now, you would think that the head, which is heavier, would be hanging down. And so this is actually what happens when the squid are kept in an aquarium in the library, in the laboratory. However, uh, Vecchioni notes that the squid also have a photophore, which generates bioluminescent and is, and is located near the buoyant shell. And so generally, deep sea animals tend to look upward, trying to see the silhouette of potential prey, and to have their own light-generating organs facing down to try and wash out their own silhouette to prevent themselves from becoming prey. And so the position in the video would make sense for the environment. Now, this is one of the biggest questions about how, there are other big questions about how the Sparella live in the wild. We don't yet know how they reproduce or where they lay their eggs. And so we'll need more observations of them to find out for sure, uh, not only how they are generally oriented, but how they do things like reproduce. And even beyond that, in addition, at the end of the encounter, when the squid jets out of view, it leaves behind a rather distinctive cloud of ink, probably as a diversion tactic for its escape. That's interesting, because Spirilla has the mechanism to make ink, but it's reduced in this species, like other deep-sea species, Vecchioni told Science Alert. But this suggests it's functional and they're using it for defense. And so, again, hopefully more uh, footage of this rather adorable uh, little squid will be forthcoming. And we will learn more about it, especially now that we've actually found one in the wild. We can probably go back there and hopefully find another one to observe. Um and maybe we'll find more. Maybe we'll find that they aren't as solitary as all that. Because uh, 
we're actually going to move on to another uh, story about a rare sighting of a squid. <laughs> and so this one is also in Australia, and it gives us an increased understanding of the rare big fin squid, Magna pinidae, which had only been spotted in the wild 12 times previously to the five new sightings detailed in this new paper. Now, the squids were filmed in the Great Australian Bight in South Australia. Now, this is actually a squid you may have seen before on some sort of website about weird and bizarre creatures because it has a head with large wing-like fins on the sides of the mantle. And then it has long, thin blue tentacles streaming behind the mantle. But what's really weird about them is that they actually sometimes show as being bent for part of it. And so part of it will come out from away from the mantle and then the rest will hang down. So it looks as if they have elbows. And I know that I've seen at one point on one of those sort of weird and wonderful uh, websites that has all sorts of bizarre things that are like, is it an alien? And it was one of these squid. Um, and it does look very weird. Um, and so uh, if you don't see a picture of it without size comparison information, because it's not actually that big, it's just extremely long, um, it can look rather like uh, I would say, for instance, the uh, aliens from War of the Worlds. So it has that kind of look to it, um, very much so. And so the video marks both the first time the squid has been recorded in Australian waters and the first time that five of the animals have been caught together in the same vicinity. And so lead author Deborah Osterhag a marine researcher with the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, or CICERO, um, probably CICERO, Australia's government science agency, notes that the video gives researchers new insight into the squid's anatomy and behavior. I was stunned and excited when I first saw the, blue, the big fin squid in a photo collected by our camera, Osterhager said. I recognized it immediately with its distinctive large fins and extremely long and slender arms and tentacles. And so the animal was first caught by fishermen near Portugal in 1907, but it wasn't until 80 years later in 1988 that one was actually seen in the wild some 15,535 feet underwater off the coast of Brazil. So clearly they get around. <laughs> They're definitely an animal that is far-reaching in the sea. And so over 40 hours of the squid was filmed between depths of 3,100 and 7,900 feet below the surface. And this allowed them to measure one of the squids with unprecedented, unprecedented precision. We were able to measure one specimen with lasers at a first as previous measurements are estimates based on nearby objects, Osterhag said. It measured 5.9 feet in length, 
The specimen's mantle was around six inches, again, not very big, with the remaining 5.9 feet made up of those long arms with tentacles. And so, in other words, it has a body or mantle about the length of a dollar bill with tentacles that are almost six feet long. And in fact, this specimen, they believe, is actually quite a small uh, specimen because others have been estimated to be as much as 22 feet long. And so, as noted, the squid's tentacles, again, have what seem like elbows. And in one viewing, a squid actually raised one arm above its mantle and held it there. This behavior had never been seen before in this squid, and they suggest it might have something to do with filter feeding, but again, we'll need a lot more observations to determine more about these odd squids. There is much to learn about the big fin squid. Basic questions such as what it feeds upon, how it reproduces, etc. are still unknown, Osterhage said. But one exciting thing about our paper is that all five specimens were found clustered in close spatial and temporal proximity of each other, which had never been seen before. And so they say that the clustering may either be for survival reasons or for mating opportunities. But again, we'll need time spending more uh, we'll need more time to spend observing these weird squid. Uh, and of course, this comes into my reminder that we know a lot less about our own oceans than we really should. Um, we should have the equivalent of the space race uh, to develop ways to actually survey and map the oceans in order to discover what is there, and how we may save it, because we continue to ignore the real tangible threat of global warming. And so a lot of these amazing creatures may be uh, pushed to the brink of extinction before we even know that they're there. Um, and this is, of course, a continuing frustration for me. Um, I am always saying that maybe we should learn more about our own planet uh, so that we can take better care of it rather than spending so much time uh, thinking about moving to other planets. Um, but again, I'm not against space. We're going to talk about some space-related stuff in uh, after we finish up with the oceans. But I just think it's so important for us to really contemplate the idea that the oceans are the main ecosystem on this planet. Uh, obviously, humans tend to think about land because they live on land. But uh, remember that the Earth is 70% water. Um, I think it's 70%. And so we really need to be thinking about how we are going to do a better job at stewarding the oceans. Um, especially since so many people on the earth rely on the ocean as their primary source of food. And so we really need to do a better job and finding out more about these weird and wonderful animals is great. And it 
helps, I think, to give people a perspective on the fact that we don't know enough about the oceans and that we really need to do a better job about it. And so to that end, researchers are actually developing ways that will hopefully uh, lead to better measuring of marine populations using environmental DNA. Now, we've actually talked about the use of eDNA before to estimate populations of, they were looking for uh, what animals were in Loch Ness. They actually found that there were a lot of eels because there was a huge amount of eel eDNA in the samples. And so it's a really interesting thought that there are a lot of eels in the loch and that could be perhaps some of the sightings could be of large eels. But we're not talking about uh, Loch Ness tonight. We're talking about the oceans. And so researchers are hoping to use eDNA to augment the usual way that fish populations are currently tracked. Using trawling missions, which currently only provide a rough estimate of fish populations and are very expensive. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars a day um, for a trawling vessel, a research trawling vessel to be out on the ocean. And so that's, you know, kind of a big deal to be spending that much money on uh, monitoring fish populations. But the thing is, is that we really need to be monitoring fish populations because there is a lot of uh, shenanigans that go out on uh, on the high seas. There's a lot of illegal fishing that happens, a lot of, um, you know, fisheries that are just not well managed because they're in odd places. And so being able to add eDNA will potentially be very helpful. And in fact, uh, trawling in some places just doesn't work. So for instance, coral reefs, wind farms, and areas of the ocean covered by rocky protrusions that are, of course, dangerous for heavy trawling nets. And so a new study has suggested that eDNA will indeed be able to be used to help with surveying fish populations. And so researchers in the field are cautiously optimistic that this may be able to be deployed. Now, while it can be used to show that a species is present, it's hard to use currently in order to estimate populations. It's just a really, really hard problem to crack, says Jesse Ossabel, an environmental scientist at Rockefeller University who helped organize the new study. Questions such as, does a certain amount of DNA present indicate several small fish or one large fish? Or in areas where DNA does not degrade quickly, can it be a reliable gauge of living populations? Abound. And so research conducted thus far uh, has had mixed results. So last year, a group led by Ian Salter, a chemical oceanographer at the Faro Marine Research Institute, found found around an 80% match between data from eDNA and trawling in areas where Atlantic cod was most abundant. 
However, a group working in the Baltic Sea found a much weaker correlation between eDNA and the information found using traditional trawlers. The new study is a collaboration of Rockefeller University, Monmouth University, and New Jersey's Bureau of Marine Fisheries. And so the team, led by Rockefeller environmental geneticist Mark Stokel, analyzed DNA from water samples collected by a research vessel, which conducted trawls throughout 2019. It's an incredible amount of work, said Ole Shelton, a fisheries biologist with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, who was not involved. This is a nice step forward. Despite knowing that eDNA was powerful, Stokel was still impressed by the findings. The team detected 99 fish species during the year with a single liter of seawater, identifying just as many species as had been found while trawling 66 million liters of water. They found that there was around a 70% match between eDNA and trawls in respect to species abundance. Now, they could only measure abundances in comparison to different species rather than absolute abundance of any one species. They used calculations of the average surface area of each species to strengthen the correlation. They assumed that one large fish would, in fact, shed less DNA than a group of smaller fish with the same mass. I was really astonished, said Einar Nielsen, a gen geneticist at the Technical University of Denmark, who was also not involved in the work. It's among the strongest evidence that there's a good correlation between trawls and eDNA. Asabel believes the standard procedures for estimating abundance from eDNA may be developed by the end of the decade or even sooner if researchers can determine the answers to key questions, such as DNA degradation rate and variations of DNA shedding by species. The fisheries community is poised to start adopting this, and I think you'll see a lot of rapid uptake in the next few years, he said. Stokel and Salter both hope to get back into the field after the COVID-19 pandemic is over. And while eDNA is cheaper and easier to do than trawling, it can be done, um, it can be done much more frequently. And so uh, this might be a way to track real-time changes to fish populations. However, eDNA is unfortunately not set to replace trawling as it cannot answer important questions such as the age, size, and sex of fish, which are of course important for forecasting population changes. But any tool that can help us better track fish populations is welcome as I have already noted we need to be better about sustainable fishing as time goes on. Um, there is a lot of problems with uh, overfishing in general, but also with um, illegal fishing. There are all sorts of ways in which um, fisheries are being overworked or being worked 
in ways that they're not supposed to be because fish is a big business and a lot of people need fish in order to uh, keep their diets on track and a lot of people are really interested in rare kinds of fishes as delicacies. Um, this is a place where there's a lot of problems with uh, delicacies and um, other ways in which the ocean has things that people want, and so they simply take them. Um, this is obviously a much larger problem. Uh, the oceans are so vast that a lot of people can get away with a lot of stuff without anybody being able to tell that it's going on. Um, and it's very frustrating and upsetting because obviously, again, the ocean is 70% of our planet and it sustains so many people. But if those people can't continue to use it sustainably, then we're going to have collapses. And with global warming already affecting the oceans, um, you know, with increased acidification and coral reef bleaching, um, you know, I hate to be a downer and I don't like talking about global warming, but, um, you know, climate change is here and we're already having to reckon with it. And any information that we can gather that will help us reckon with it, uh, I think is very, very helpful. All right. We are going to take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos and we will be back and we are going to switch and talk about space uh, after this. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org.
the Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Now, I want to start off with something that we started talking about last week, um, but obviously there have been uh, developments since then. And so I want to start off this half of the show by acknowledging the true demise of the Arecibo Observatory. And so uh, if you don't know, the 900-ton instrument platform has collapsed rather spectacularly, unfortunately. Um, It basically cracked the gigantic radar dish in half. Um, And while I think that obviously the engineers have been vindicated in their assessment that the platform was too dangerous to be worked on... um, it's still very uh, upsetting. Now, thankfully, no one was actually hurt when it collapsed. Uh, the collapse occurred at 7.55 a.m. Um, back on Tuesday, uh, December 1st. And so um, luckily, uh, it was early enough in the morning that I assume not a lot of people had uh, reported for work yet um, because it did damage uh, surrounding facilities, including uh significant damage to a learning center. And this is according to the National Science Foundation. Now, the damage is still being assessed and recovery teams are working to mitigate, uh, for instance, potential environmental damage uh, caused by the collapse. Now, unfortunately, uh, while there have been a lot of retrospectives because the end was obviously coming, uh, I think that it's starting to be clear that the uh, early reports that, you know, the observatory was mostly an artifact of the past uh, has been not so correct. And so we are actually starting to see uh, some information about how it was actually still in active use and is going to be uh, missed. Uh, very distinctly. There's been statements in the media that, oh, we have other systems that can kind of replace what Arecibo is doing, and I don't think that's true. Anne Verkey, who leads the planetary radar team at 
Arecibo Observatory told Space.com. It's not obsolete, and it's not easily replaceable by other existing facilities and instruments. Now, Arecibo has been instrumental in not only searching for things like aliens, but it has been instrumental in quickly tracking near-Earth asteroids' location, size, shape, and surface. And so there are telescopes like the Pan-STARRS Observatory in Hawaii, but they can't do it as quickly as Arecibo could do. They would just sort of find the object, and then Arecibo could do the more uh, technical and uh, exploratory um, observations of these objects. Now, speed can sometimes be a factor, says Bruce Betts, chief scientist at the Planetary Society, which is a nonprofit space exploration advocacy group. Uh, which is also uh, very, you may know it from Bill Nye, who is a uh, founding member, I believe, of uh, the Planetary Society. Uh, You want to define an orbit as quickly as you can to figure out whether the asteroid is going to hit Earth, Betts notes. Now, having enough forward time may allow for humanity to do something that might prevent a dramatic collision with the Earth. This is actually a preventable natural disaster if we work hard enough, Betts said. Even though it's rare, it's something we can actually do something about, unlike, say, hurricanes or earthquakes, in terms of the prevention aspect. And radar-based observatories can more easily tell if an object is one object or two smaller ones, as 15% of discovered near-Earth asteroids have been found to be. And obviously, that's an important piece of data to have in planning for an intervention. It is also better at discerning the composition of asteroids. Some are solid metal, some are fluff balls or rubble piles, so they vary considerably in density, Betts said. If you actually have to deflect an asteroid, if it actually is targeting Earth, the techniques may respond differently depending on whether you're dealing with a very dense asteroid or a very fluffy asteroid. And so the only remaining radar transmitter that can perform this job is at the Goldstone Deep Space Communication Center in California, which is run by NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. However, that observatory already has a host of responsibilities. And so these are things including military usages. And so it's hard to suddenly take all of that work that was being done at Arecibo and simply transfer it to this other radio telescope. Not only due to just the simple factor of time, but also because it's around 20 times less sensitive. They are not going to be as flexible with scheduling these recently discovered target observations as Arecibo has been, Verki said. If you don't get to observe those targets when they are in the window, then you might lose the opportunity very quickly. And then you have these asteroids that have been 
that have higher uncertainties in their orbits. Now, plans are also being made to add radar capability at the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, but this is a slightly different kind of um, radar, and it will be both more vulnerable to weather and also have a narrower beam, which means that it will be able to see less of the sky at any one time. And with the Vera Rubin Observatory coming online next year, we'll start discovering asteroids at a rate of up to 10 times more quickly than all other telescopes combined. So we're going to have a situation where we have a lot more to worry about with a lot less capacity to track them more precisely. And so that doesn't sound like an ideal situation to me. Uh, and so it would be great if the observatory could be rebuilt. Uh, but of course, that would take a lot of money and involves forward thinking. And that's something that governments and frankly, people in general are bad at doing. Uh, that is one of the great tragedies of the human condition is that we are bad at forward thinking. Um, we, as a collective uh, species, we fail the marshmallow test every time, it seems. Um, so if you don't know, the marshmallow test is uh, the idea that you sit someone in front of a marshmallow, uh, usually a little child, um, usually a small child, and uh, you say you can have one marshmallow now, or you can stare at that marshmallow for 15 minutes, and when I come back, you can have that one plus another one. And, you know, the tradition is that most kids will not be able to handle staring at it for 15 minutes, and they'll just end up eating it. And so they'll only get the one when if they had just hold, held out for a few more minutes, they'd have gotten the second one. Um, it's supposed to be about willpower, but I just think it's more about forward thinking in general. Um, humans are bad at the idea that if we do something now for the future, that we will uh, pat ourselves on the back about it rather than just doing what is easy and useful right now. Um, we're bad at not choosing the shiny thing in front of us in order to potentially continue to be able to access shiny things in the future. And so, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to happier news. Uh, China has launched a small probe that was on top of the Chang'e 5 lander, which uh, arrived just recently on the moon, in fact, uh, it lifted off from Oceanus Procellarum yesterday morning and is carrying the first fresh samples of lunar regolith returning to the Earth since 1976. And so six minutes after takeoff, the craft achieved lunar orbit, which is an important step to getting the samples back to Earth. It will now meet up with the Chang'e 5 orbiter, while both are orbiting the moon, and then will transfer the samples to a return capsule to be sent back to Earth. And so this next step is for the two parts to dock, uh, which needed to be automated due to the time delay for commands from Earth. 
And so the final approach should take place sometime on Saturday. And if all goes well, it should be then prepared for a trip back to Earth. More precisely, the Sizawang Banner, Inner Mongolia, which is the site used by the China National Space Administration to return astronauts home who were aboard the Shenzhou spacecraft. Now, the journey will take a few days to begin because of the window for properly setting up a return trajectory. They only have a window of a couple of hours, but they have to wait for that window to open up so that it is the right trajectory for going from where they are in orbit of the moon back to Earth. It will then take 112 hours before attempting re-entry. Because it will be traveling uh, relatively fast, uh, much faster than things in uh, near-Earth orbit because it's been, uh, it's gotten a kick from the moon that it will actually bounce off of the atmosphere once in order to get some deceleration before trying to land. Now, the lander arrived on the moon just this past Tuesday and almost immediately began taking pictures and collecting lunar samples. It was actually finished by 19 hours later with the samples transferred to the ascent vehicle. Now, on the other side of the universe... I'm sorry, on the other side of the solar system, a little closer (laughs) than the universe. Um, On the other side of the solar system... Uh, and actually slightly outside the solar system these days, uh, we're going to switch and talk about some old spacecraft, uh, the Voyager spacecraft. And so there is Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and they were actually launched really close to one another, but they had different trajectories. So one of them entered the heliopause uh, or exited the heliopause a lot faster um than the other one. So Voyager 2, I believe, is the one that just reached uh, interstellar space in the last couple of years. And so a recent paper in the Astronomical Journey Journal describes a new form of electron burst, which was discovered using the Voyager probes. These bursts are in the interstellar medium, a region of space that has an extremely low density of matter. But something odd is happening to cosmic ray electrons as they stream through this remote region. They're being reflected and boosted to high speeds by shock waves radiating out from the sun. Now, particles being pushed by shock waves is not some sort of crazy thing. That is actually something that is reasonable. Uh, there are bursts of electrons that appear uh, ahead of shock, advancing shockwaves. But the fact that these are so far ahead of the advancing shockwave is what is new. It's also odd that it's happening in a region that is supposed to be relatively quiet with very low densities of matter. The area is called the Very Local Interstellar Medium, or Velism, a region between the hot solar plasma, the edge of which is called the heliopause, sorry, I didn't mention that before, and the cooler interstellar medium, which is outside of the boundary of the solar system. Astrophysicist Don Gurnett from Iowa University, the paper's co-author, notes that some may argue that the Voyager probes are still in the solar system, but he argues that the pressure of the gas at the location 
of the Voyager probes is equal to that found in the interstellar medium, and therefore he argues that they are definitely outside of the solar system. Makes sense to me. Now, before the probes reached this region, we thought it might get downright boring and that nothing changes out there, said Gurnett. But what we found is that it's not all quiet and quiescent at all. The interstellar medium has important things going on. Now, the stellar shock waves traveling into this region of space come from coronal mass injections on the sun. These waves travel at over a million miles an hour, but still take more than a year to reach the heliopause and another six months to reach the Voyager probes. It takes approximately 20 hours for transmissions from the probes to reach Earth, despite traveling at the speed of light. So they're very far out in space now. I think it's very clear um, that they are no longer in the local neighborhood. <laughs> what is unexpected, as noted above, is that the bursts of electrons appearing far ahead of the leading edge of these shock waves. The study is unique in that it looks at several large solar storms that punched through the bubble of, that the sun carves out of the interstellar medium and extends far beyond Pluto. Herbert Funsten, a space scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, who's not involved with the new study, explained, The Voyager spacecraft are in the interstellar medium and are therefore looking into the bubble and the shocks that cross the, the bubble boundary from the outside provide a unique, quiet observation location that we can observe from inside the bubble. Now, the probes detected these particles using instruments that were set up to detect cosmic rays, uh, which NASA set up because they are smart and they knew that this might be something that they could use later on in the mission as the Voyager probes were continuing out of the solar system. NASA is good at uh, planning. They're pretty good about it. Not always, obviously, but they're better than average at forward thinking. <laughs> so the probes are actually uh, detecting electrons, which are bouncing off and being redirected by the magnetic field lines in the interstellar plasma. Magnetic field lines in the interstellar medium are almost purely straight lines, explained Gurnett. We detected the electron bursts when the shock waves first touched the magnetic field lines running through the Voyager spacecraft. And that's the mechanism. The shock wave just touches the magnetic field line and there's a jump at the shock which reflects and energizes a few of the cosmic ray electrons. Now, the authors refer to the electrons as, quote, interstellar foreshocks. And these are apparently moving 670 times faster than the initial shock wave, which means they're being accelerated to near relativistic speeds. If you think about it, <laughs> that is a huge amount of uh, acceleration. And so the probes detected the actual shock waves, which arrived between 13 and 30 days after the electron spikes. 
This is analogous to seeing light reflected from the cloud of a faraway explosion and then hearing the boom at a later time, said Funstein. Funston. The time that it takes to see the cloud and hear the boom provides important information about the properties of the interstellar medium and properties of the punch-through of the shockwave into the, inter into the interstellar medium. Now, more information about these electrons will come as more data comes in from Voyager 2, which, again, hasn't been in the interstellar medium for very long. It will also be studied with NASA's upcoming IMAP mission, which is Interstellar Mapping and Acceleration Probe, which is scheduled to launch in 2024. The information could give us more information the, the data could give us more information about the interactions between shockwaves and cosmic radiation here and in other solar systems, including exploding stars. It could also help us to help to inform us about the kinds of exposure that astronaut, astronauts might encounter while working in space. Okay, so we've recently talked about space junk which can be a big problem for astronauts as they begin to explore near space. Well, recently, we've been able to confirm the identity of a piece of space junk in heliocentric orbit. The object was observed by astronomers in August and has now been identified as the upper stage of a Centaur rocket, launched by NASA in 1966 during a failed mission to explore the moon. A team led by Vishnu Reddy, an associate professor at the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona, confirmed that object 2220-SO is indeed part of a Centaur rocket booster. As humanity expands into space, we're going to see a lot of objects that are artificial in heliocentric orbits, he said. It's essential that we know what's coming our way, whether it's artificial or natural. To which he added, this whole process shows that it's possible to identify something that was launched 54 years ago, which is pretty impressive. Now, the object was detected by astronomers using the Pan-STARRS-1 survey in Maui, Hawaii. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of telescopes in Hawaii because... Um, there is a lot less air pollution, for instance, there, uh, and also light pollution. They realized that it was most likely a man-made object due to the particulars of its orbit. Paul Chodas, director of the Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, CNEOS, uh, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, used mathematical modeling to discover that the object's 1966 flyby of Earth was close enough that it might have been the origin of the object. NASA then reached out to Reddy, who was an expert in identifying such objects. This is totally in my wheelhouse, as I characterize asteroids for NASA and space debris in Earth orbit for the U.S. Air Force, he said. NASA asked him to confirm whether or not the object was indeed man-made using a spectral signal. The object's visual magnitude was quite small, so it would be basically impossible to see. There's a spec but a spectral signature can tell scientists what the composition of the item is and therefore would be identifying. 
Reddy and his team used the Large Binocular Telescope in Arizona to collect first color observations of 2020 SO and compare them to typical asteroids. They found that the pictures did not match. But the money is in the infrared and not invisible wavelengths, Reddy noted. The team then used NASA's infrared telescope facility on Mauna Kea in Hawaii to get a spectrum reading on the object. Now, it actually took some time because they had to basically wait in line for time on the telescope. Archival photos of the Centaur rocket stage showed that parts of it were painted white. So Reddy's team reached out to the paint company and was actually able to receive samples of the paint used. Unfortunately, the spectral signatures didn't actually match up. So they turned to a NASA historian who let them know that what they were seeing wasn't actually paint at all, but rather foam paneling that had been jettisoned from the vehicle during launch. Um, they then moved to detect the stainless steel used in the construction, 301 stainless steel, and this time they made a good match, but Reddy was not yet satisfied. They went back to the IRTF and scanned the object again. This time they found a new signature containing a large amount of carbon. They realized after a bit that they were seeing the signature of plastic backings of the aluminum mylar, which had been used to screen electronic components. The rocket booster is tumbling around in space, said Reddy, and so it makes sense as we're seeing everything. But to fully confirm, Reddy wanted to compare the spectrum to other Centaur rocket bodies that are also orbiting the Earth. This actually proved to be quite hard as the IRTF has a tiny field of vision, has a tiny field of view and was not designed to survey a larger area. Reddy tried to actually find the objects using a backyard telescope, but was thwarted by a chimney. <laughs> However, his grad student, Tanner Campbell, was successful and was able to relay the info to telescope operator Dave Greep at NASA's IRTF. The newly observed stage was launched in 1977. They also managed to scan two more invisible light, and they found that they matched. You cannot get a better match, said Reddy. The same steel and plastic for all centaurs. The object can now be confirmed as an upper stage booster launched during the W. Sojourner mission, or during the Sojourner mission, sorry, meant to explore the moon prior to the Apollo missions. Having worked on this identification, it should be easier next time when we need to figure out just what an object is as it swings across the sky. And as far as near-Earth space junk goes, the ESA has contracted the Clear Space One mission, which will be built by a Swiss startup called ClearSpace, and will be the first mission to specifically take care of a piece of space junk. The mission is slated for 2025 and will use a four-armed claw to grip a washing machine-sized piece of junk and then move the object to a lower Earth orbit, which will allow it to burn up in the atmosphere. The object is one of ESA's Vega rockets, which was launched to um, put two satellites into orbit. It's a simple structure, like a small satellite, said Muriel Richard Noka, chief engineer of ClearSpace. The challenge is to design an imaging system that can 
that can autonomously characterize the object and snatch it up. You don't know how it is moving, and the only way to know is to go up and look, she says. They also had to decide on a capture technique. Using the gripper requires a close approach, which can be dangerous, while using a net can be done from a distance, but would have to be spot on the first time in order to complete the mission. Ultimately, they decided that since the gripper claw could be attempted multiple times, it made more sense. The company hopes to use this as a proof of concept to move on to bigger and more dangerous objects, which is good news. Darren McKnight, a space debris expert at the technology company Centauri, presented an analysis of the 50 most dangerous pieces of space junk in low Earth orbit. The first 20 items on his list are Soviet and Russian rocket stages launched between 1985 and 2007, each of which is heavier than an elephant and as big as a school bus. Now, again, the problem is that there doesn't seem to be enough political will among nations to take these threats seriously. A lot of this is coming from private industry uh, space tech startups. And so a lot of these experts believe that, you know, we need to be starting to work on this right now, especially since we want to move towards having more people in space. So hopefully this is going to be a good proof of, techno a proof of concept and we'll get this going. Maybe we'll get some actual people in uh, NASA to be able to work on this now that we uh, will hopefully be moving less towards doing things like pushing to get to the moon so that we can potentially win an election. Um, anyways, <laughs> all right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, you have been listening to evidence-based radio and I hope you have a good night. Evidence-based radio is a member of the planet side podcast network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.